0: Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 11. I'll begin in verse 1, reading from the ESV translation through verse 46. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Martha, it was Mary <clears throat> who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take the stone away. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is God's Word. Good morning.
0: Um, My name is Trevor Gaiman. My wife Brittany is here with me. Uh, We've been married 10 years. We have three boys. They are upstairs now, up to no good, I'm sure. Uh, I've known Pastor Roger for many years, and I was very honored that he asked me to speak this morning. But I must tell you, I was also very nervous I haven't uh, preached a sermon in about seven years, um, and I had a, a stress dream a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you guys have ever had one of those, but in my dream, I was preaching my sermon, and I kept looking down, and my shirt w- would be unbuttoned. So I'd button it up, and i looked down again, and it was unbuttoned, and that went on and on for a while. So just to be safe, I wore a polo today, so... <laughs> I think I'll be all right. The other thing that happened in the dream is about halfway through my sermon, Pastor Roger came on stage and uh, escorted me politely off and just started doing baptisms. Um, So I was a little bit concerned last week when I learned that they had scheduled baptisms for today, Uh, but I've since learned that they've rescheduled them, so I think I'm in the clear. So uh, the topic today is God's omnipotence. Omnipotence is simply the attribute of being all-powerful. So when we say that God is omnipotent, we are simply saying that he can do whatever he wants. Whatever he wills to do, he is able to do. So the thesis of the sermon today is simply this. God is all-powerful, able to do whatever he wants, yet his purposes are greater than ours. And when he doesn't do what we think he should, we can still trust him we can still have confidence that he will prove himself faithful in the end. So before we go into John 11, I want to do a brief survey, a little bit of uh, systematic theology here, and I want to see where do we uh, learn about God's omnipotence in Scripture. So the first place immediately is in Genesis in the creation account. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God creates out of nothing nothing, He creates without struggle, merely by speaking. He says, let there be light, and there was light. He also sustains His creation. Colossians 1, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He controls history. We learn in the Old Testament that He creates this nation, Israel, a people for Himself from one man, Abraham. And He controls the destiny of all nations. In Job, Job says he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Daniel, he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. God does miracles. In the Old Testament, most famously, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and all of the miracles that go along with that, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. Of course, Jesus' earthly ministry is filled with miracles feeds the multitudes, heals the sick, rebukes the wind and the waves. And as we just read, he raises the dead. In scripture, God is called the mighty one of Israel, the great and mighty God, God almighty, the Lord strong and mighty, etc., etc. He is limited only by his will. Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. So I selected this passage in John 11 because it's a great example of God's power, Uh, even over death, but also it shows the confusion, disillusionment, and disappointment that follow when we expect God to do something that we know he's able to do, but he doesn't. And John 11 explores this important question. Why doesn't God, if he is able to, prevent suffering in the first place? Does he not want to? Is he really able to? Christian apologists often will characterize this question as the most difficult challenge uh, to Christianity. You may have heard of it. It's often called the problem of evil or the argument against God from the existence of evil. It's worth mentioning, I think, that God's word does not shy away from these kinds of difficult questions. We've all asked these kinds of questions at some point. In fact, bringing these questions to God is exactly what we're supposed to do. In doing so, we get the grace that we need to face loss and the hope that we need to believe that it will all be okay in the end. So the first thing I want to look at in John 11 is these questions. We see a few of them. Mary and Martha repeat verbatim the same question. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, where were you, Lord? Why didn't you come? We sent word to you that he was ill. Why didn't you show up before it was too late? The other question comes from observers. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Verse 37. Notice these are two different kinds of questions. Martha and Mary question Jesus' love for them. Why didn't he come? Others question his power. Couldn't he have done something to stop this? It's exactly the objections We just discussed. Either he was unable to prevent it, and so maybe he's not as powerful as we thought. Or he didn't want to prevent it, so maybe he's not as good as we hoped. What other explanation could there be? The Bible is full of people asking these very questions. Job is a great example. Listen to what Job says. Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Job again, though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. The prophets, similarly, here's Habakkuk. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? The psalmists, Psalm 10, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 88, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? If you've ever asked questions like this, you're in good company. Now let's look at some of the potential ways to answer this question in general. The first thought you might have is, maybe God is punishing me. Maybe I've done something wrong. Now, it's true, the Bible teaches two things regarding that kind of answer. First, the the world is broken due to our sin. God creates a perfect world without suffering, and our rebellion against God is what plunged the the world into chaos. And we ourselves are broken. We seek our own interests, We resist God's authority in our lives. And so we have no basis to say that we deserve a trouble-free life. The second thing is that some suffering is the result of choices we make. There's a moral framework that God has placed in the world. Proverbs is a good example of this kind of biblical teaching. Proverbs 13, dishonest money dwindles away. Also, if you look at the laments in the prophetic books, they're often about Israel being punished because they were unfaithful. However, the Bible is not simplistic about suffering. It recognizes this very large category of seemingly inexplicable or even unjust suffering. And in this passage, in John 11, there is nothing to indicate that Lazarus or Martha or Mary have done anything or were in any way being punished by God. And there are other examples in Scripture. Job is a perfect example, the ultimate uh, innocent sufferer. And then Jesus brings up this very topic in Luke 13. Some disciples come, some people come to him, and they ask him about these Galileans that were killed in this barbaric way. And he says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? The second way to approach this question and answer might be to think there really is no meaning to tragedy. It just happens. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Now, if the previous answer was like a religious answer, this would be the secular answer. This is the struggle, struggle of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Listen to what he says. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Viktor Frankl was a Jew who survived the Holocaust. He was imprisoned in a concentration camp during World War II, and afterwards he wrote about his experience in a phenomenal book called Man's Search for Meaning. And here's what he says about suffering. If there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Frankl said that the most common reaction of prisoners uh, that he saw was despair and self-preservation, but there were a few who rose above and saw what Frankl called the hidden opportunity of suffering to grow spiritually. He recounts that everyone in the camps remembers those few who comforted others who gave away their last piece of bread? He goes on. Most men in the concentration camp believed that the real opportunities of life had passed. Yet in reality, there was an opportunity and a challenge. One could make a victory of those experiences, turning life into an inner triumph. You know, our culture really offers you very little to help you face hardship. Suffering is really only ever an interruption. Has no meaning it only prevents you from achieving what you're supposed to achieve from finding your purpose it must be eliminated or minimized and of course that's true in part we are supposed to work to relieve suffering in the world and yet it is what frankl called an eradicable part of life we can't completely get rid of it and if your meaning in life depends on everything going well for you then it will be too fragile And suffering will destroy you. But if your meaning in life includes the possibility of facing unexpected tragedy and that God is in control and working everything for your good, then you will have the ability to endure great difficulty when it comes. Ultimately, we can't accept this kind of answer anyway. We can't accept that our suffering is meaningless. We cry out to God almost reflexively for an explanation. And of course, the Bible tells us that God's purposes, while often inscrutable, are in fact, yet he is in fact in control and can be trusted. But here's something we can know for sure. Martha and Mary are struggling to understand the reason for what has happened. They are no doubt wondering whether Jesus cares for them. Look at how much Jesus' love for this family is emphasized in this passage. Verse three, Martha and Mary refer to Lazarus as he whom you love, He whom you love is ill. John explicitly says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When Jesus tells his disciples that they are going to Bethany, he says, we must go to our friend Lazarus. And of course, Jesus weeps and deeply moved. And the people seeing that say, see how he loved him. John is taking great care in his gospel to repeatedly stress that the reason this has all happened is not because Jesus did not care about this family. Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. And of course, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he completely vindicates himself. He answers both questions. He demonstrates that he does love them, and that he does have the power to undo even the most seemingly irreversible tragedy. But there's something more. If we look closely, we can see just how much Jesus loves this family and us. In verse 53, we learn what happens as a result of raising Lazarus. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. If you look back at verse 8, the disciples are warning Jesus, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. This explains why Thomas, in verse 16, is convinced they are going to die. He says we're gonna, they're going to go to their deaths, and in, he's right in part. This miracle is the inciting incident that leads directly to the decision of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin to kill Jesus. Within a few weeks of this, Jesus is crucified. Jesus knew by going to Bethany and raising Lazarus, it would cost him his life. That is what John is intentionally showing us here, the connection between Lazarus' death and resurrection and Christ's. The price to redeem us, To end our suffering is for the Son of God, the Almighty One, the creator of heaven and earth, to be mocked, beaten, tortured, nailed to a cross, and left to die. And Jesus is willing to pay that price. What we see here is not just Jesus exercising his power, we see him trading his life for Lazarus. Trading his life for ours. See, the cross answers the most important part of the problem of evil. Tim Keller says it like this. When you suffer, you may be completely in the dark about the reason for your own suffering, but the cross tells you what the reason isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love you. It can't be that he has no plan for you. It can't be that he has abandoned you. The cross proves that he loves you and understands what it means to suffer. So no matter how inexplicable our situation, we know that whatever God's reasons are, it's not because he doesn't care about us. When Jesus learns that Lazarus is sick, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There is this connection in the New Testament between suffering and glory, and it's actually surprisingly common. Here's one example, 2 Corinthians For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's a depth here that's beyond me, but I think I understand at least enough to say this. The difficulties we face as believers will ultimately only serve to show how beautiful and wonderful God really is. In this case, what happened to Lazarus led to many people believing in Jesus, it's the climax of the seven signs in the Gospel of John and the most impactful miracle of Jesus' ministry accepting His own resurrection. Listen to what happened. Verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what, and seen what He did, believed in Him. In the next chapter, on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples, even, "For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe." And the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which happens in a couple weeks, happens in the wake of the excitement generated by this miracle. The people shouting Hosanna, and they either witnessed or had heard about this miracle. Lazarus' death was undone, and in the end, it played an important part of God's work of saving people, his work of redemption. And that's the promise for us. Whatever hardship we face, We can trust that God will redeem it and weave it into his story of saving the people he loves. But it's hard, right? When we experience difficulty, we often don't know what God is doing and we don't understand how it could ever possibly work out. Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know he will rise. Again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And when he said that, he wasn't simply correcting her. He was reminding her that the reason the dead rise on the last day is because Jesus shows up. He is the resurrection, and he's standing right in front of her. Last week, Pastor Taylor taught on John 4, and there's this similar conversation happening between Jesus and the woman at the well. And Jesus tells her at one point, if you knew who it is who asks you for a drink... If you only knew who you were talking to, how much would it change the way we pray if we really grasp the reality of who we're talking to? The same one who laid the foundations of the earth, hung the stars, and will one day split the sky and empty the graves is with us right now, wanting a relationship with us. Here's a potential objection to all this. You might say, well, Jesus gave Martha and Mary their brother back. He hasn't answered my prayer. I'll offer two things I think might be helpful. First is, we're still in the waiting, right? They waited a few days, but consider Joseph from Genesis, who was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely imprisoned. He had to wait decades for God to vindicate him and fulfill his promises. But in the end, listen to What Joseph says, when his brothers come to him again and they're bowing before him and they're afraid that he hasn't really forgiven them, listen to his understanding of everything that had happened in his life. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's understanding of all the evil he went through were transformed when God's purposes were finally revealed. John Frame, a Christian apologist, says this, A great part of the problem of suffering lies in the fact that our suffering is drawn out in time. We cry out to God, and he does not seem to hear. Or rather, he in effect tells us to wait and wait and wait. Scripture tells us a great deal about this waiting process. It shows us how God's people are tested by the passage of time over and over again, but it also shows us again and again how God brings the waiting periods to an end, vindicating himself and ending the sufferings of his people. God will absolutely vindicate himself. That's the second thing I want that might help you. He will vindicate himself. He will keep his promises to you and he will prove himself faithful. There is no guarantee that that will all happen in this life. But even if it does, even if you get the miracle you're praying for, the full promise does not come until he returns. Because what we really need, what will answer all our longings and hopes, is to be with Jesus forever. And every miracle that we see is just a preview of what it will be like when he finally shows up when he ends all suffering and wipes away all tears. And just like it was with Lazarus, it will far surpass our expectations and hopes and imaginations about what God is capable of. Maybe you think, I don't see how God could ever make up for what has happened to me. And that's a very understandable question. I'll give you this, one of my favorite quotes ever from Dostoevsky. I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. You met my father this morning. He did the scripture reading. I'll tell you a little story about him. My parents were missionaries in Southeast Asia for 15 years. We lived in Thailand. My dad mostly worked in Sri Lanka. Uh, This was back in the 80s and 90s. Well, one morning... Early one morning, the phone rings, and my dad goes downstairs to answer it. And it's his father calling from the States, and he tells my dad that his younger brother Dale had committed suicide. He was 27 years old. On the flight back to America for the funeral, God brought Isaiah 53 to my dad's mind. I'll read it for you. He was despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Here's what my dad says, looking back now on that. Acquainted with grief. Now I know what that means. I didn't want to be acquainted with grief, but now I am. God made me a member of a club I didn't want to join. Grief came knocking at the door and I had to let him in. I look back now and I see that God gave me a gift. He gave me a part of himself, a little bit of what he went through for me. Jesus didn't come in victory. The road to victory was a road of sorrow and grief. He was despised and rejected of man. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. You know, in the next chapter in John 12, Jesus comes back to Bethany on his way to Jerusalem, and here's what happens. They give a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She went from weeping at his feet to worshiping. She's overflowing with gratitude. And I think that Mary had some insight into what was about to happen to Jesus as a result of what he did for her family. It's difficult to believe when we're going through it, but in the end, we will have more joy and more intimacy with God for having gone through the difficulties of life than if we had been spared them, especially when we finally see all that God was up to. And in the end, we'll thank God for those things that were most painful, because of how he turned those horrible things to good, for our good and for the good of others. That's what it means to see God's glory. Let's talk about prayer. How should this affect the way we pray? The first thing I think we can learn from this is that we should bring all of our questions, all of our complaints, all of our doubts, all of our needs to God. When we first meet Mary and Martha earlier in the Gospels, Martha is serving this dinner and Mary is there and Martha's complaining because Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet and while she's serving. And then here in John 11, Mary again. She comes to Jesus and falls at his feet, overwhelmed with grief. And then in the next chapter, John 12, she's at Jesus' feet again, this time anointing him with perfume, wiping his feet with her hair. No matter what's happening in her life, Mary always finds her way to the very best place to be, at Jesus' feet. What a model for us. Second, we should pray with confidence in God's power. Psalm 74, the psalmist is lamenting and asking all these questions. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? How long, oh God, is the foe to scoff? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Then the psalmist reminds himself of God's power in creation. Yet God is my king from of old. You divided the sea by your might. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Or consider Isaiah 51. This is God speaking. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord? your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Martha had that faith, even in the midst of her confusion and grief. She says in verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Nothing's impossible for him. Having said that, I will say the third thing is take advantage of God's grace. Avail yourself of the grace that's made available for you. Your faith will not be perfect. Martha's faith fluctuates, goes up and down. When Jesus tells them to remove the stone, right when the miracle's about to happen, she falters. Lord, by this time there will be an odor. And yet, she still gets the miracle. Jesus is still working when our faith is weak. I love what one commentator says about this, about Martha. To such fluctuations, all real faith is subject in dark hours. God is not aloof or unsympathetic or unconcerned. He's been there. And when we pray, we are praying to a God who is acquainted with grief. He specializes in turning tragedy into triumph. The cross is both the greatest tragedy in the history of the world, but also the greatest triumph. It looks like defeat, but it is actually the ultimate demonstration of God's power and our great hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to remember you when we pray that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. Help us to pray bold prayers, Lord. Help us to remember, God, in the midst of uncertainty and confusion that you can be trusted and that in the end you will prove yourself faithful and fulfill your promises to us. Amen.